A couple of weeks ago, when we last looked at the book of Acts, we saw seven men being chosen by the church to do what seemed like a very ordinary job. You might remember that there was some friction in the church because of a lack of organization. Some of the needy believers weren't being cared for properly. And to solve the problem, the church elected seven men to wait on tables. That was the job description given by the apostles. But this morning we're going to see that at least one of those seven men didn't see himself as just someone who waits on tables. Stephen saw himself as a messenger of the good news about Jesus, who also waited on tables. And next week we'll see that another of those seven, Philip, had exactly the same outlook. In fact, it's probably fair to assume that all seven of these men were the same. They were ready and willing to do the most mundane work, but they weren't limited by that work. They realized that they were called to be God's messengers. Yes, they were not the official upfront people in the church, but they were messengers all the same. So turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 6. And if you're using a church Bible, that's page 1098. We're going to pick up where we left off last time, so at chapter 6, verse 8. And this morning we're going to follow this through to the end of chapter 7. But to begin with, I'm just going to read from verse 8 of chapter 6 down to verse 15. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In these verses, God's messenger is rejected. Luke leaves us in no doubt that Stephen is God's man. Verse 8 says he was full of God's grace and power. And that's a combination that's worth noticing. We're being told that Stephen was characterized by both gentleness and strength. He wasn't harsh. He was a mellow kind of a man. 
And at the same time, he had an intensity about him. He was actually like Jesus, the Lord that he's serving. And God is using Stephen in powerful ways. We've already reminded ourselves that Stephen hadn't been appointed to be a leader or a teacher in the church. The role he was given was to help distribute food to widows. But Stephen didn't say, well, since I'm not an official teacher, I'm not going to do any teaching. Stephen was willing enough and humble enough to take on the ministry of waiting on tables. But he was also bold enough and on fire for God enough not to stop at waiting on tables. He didn't use his ministry to those in the church as a reason to avoid ministry to those outside the church. He didn't leave the teaching and the gospel sharing to the professionals, the apostles. And we're shown here that his eagerness to share the gospel gets him into trouble. Verse 9 says, Opposition arose from the synagogue of the freedmen. Freedmen were slaves who had gained their freedom. Stephen has come into contact with a whole group of Jewish freedmen. In fact, it seems he's gone intentionally to this group because they all share the same background as him. Remember that Stephen is almost certainly one of the Grecian Jews who had been converted at Pentecost. Those were Jews who weren't natives of Israel. They were born outside Israel and they spoke Greek, unlike the Hebraic Jews that were in the church. Verse 9 tells us that Stephen was sharing the gospel with people just like himself. People who came from Cyrene and Alexandria as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. In other words, they came from places outside Israel. But while Stephen has a burden to bring his own kind of people to Christ, they are equally determined to prove what loyal Jews they are. Look at the middle of verse 9. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. This doesn't necessarily mean that Stephen was a greatly gifted man. All the indications are that his opponents can't stand up to him because God's power is at work through him. The first time we met him back in verse 5, we were told he's a man full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 told us he's full of God's grace and power. And here in verse 10, he's speaking by the Spirit. So the point is not that Stephen is some kind of a high-octane speaker. The point is that he's a man full of God and wholly dependent on God. And that, I think, should be an encouragement to all of us. Our dependence on God and our eagerness to serve God are much more important than our giftedness. In Stephen's case, his availability to God gets him into a tough situation. Verses 11 to 14 tell us that when the freedmen can't out-argue Stephen, they resort to lies and misrepresentation to try and silence him. John Stott has said that when arguments fail, 
mud has often seemed like an excellent substitute. And the mud that these men throw at Stephen amounts to three main accusations. They say that he has blasphemed against God's law given by Moses. They say that he has spoken against the temple in Jerusalem. And this amounts to blasphemy against the God who gave the law in the temple. These are very serious accusations. And they result in Stephen being dragged before the full Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. You might remember this is the same council which has already had the apostles beaten within an inch of their lives. But verse 15 tells us that when Stephen appears before the Sanhedrin, they see that his face is like the face of an angel. What's the significance of that? Well, surely we're being told this council has no excuse for what they're ultimately going to do to Stephen. They can see that God is with him. He's reflecting some of God's glory even as he stands there in front of them. The council and the people have no excuse. It's being made evident to them that this man is not against God. He's God's messenger to them. But instead of dismissing the charges against him, the Sanhedrin proceeds to put Stephen on trial. And chapter 7 contains Stephen's reply to those charges against him. It's the longest speech in the whole book. Longer even than any speech by Peter or Paul. And that tells us it's a very important speech. What Stephen is going to do is give a flyover history of God's dealings with Israel and Israel's responses to him. So this is not meant to be an exhaustive history. It's a history that highlights certain things. And it was a common approach among the Jews. It happens plenty of times in the Old Testament. Four of the Psalms are summaries of Israel's history. So Stephen isn't stupid. He's well aware that these leaders know their own history as well as he does. But he's going to confront them with some uncomfortable truths from their own history. What he outlines is a history of rejected grace. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still living in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, 
And afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Notice that Stephen starts very respectfully. In verse 2, he calls his audience brothers and fathers. And he speaks about our father, Abraham. He doesn't speak to these people as an outsider who thinks he's superior to them. This first part of Stephen's speech mentions Abraham. But actually, it's about the God of glory. That's how he refers to God in verse 2. And these first eight verses are about God's promise of a people with a place to worship him. Stephen's point is that without God's grace, there would be no nation of Israel. God is the initiator of it all. He came to Abraham when Abraham was a pagan nomad living far away from the land of Israel. And in the middle of verse 5, God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. Then God foretold a time of oppression for Abraham's descendants down in Egypt. But, verse 7, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. The word worship has a double meaning. It also means serve. God's plan for his people is not simply that they meet once a week and sing a few songs about him. The kind of worship God looks for is service. God promised Abraham a people with a place to worship or serve him. And he gave Abraham a sign of that promise, circumcision. And he began to fulfill his promise by giving Abraham a family in verse 8. Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs is a term for Jacob's sons. Today we might talk about the founding fathers of the nation. The history of the Israelites began with God's grace. And although God's grace continued thick and fast, Stephen is about to remind these people that God's grace was rejected. In verses 9 to 41, Stephen focuses in on two rejected deliverers sent by God, Joseph and Moses. First of all comes Joseph. He was one of Jacob's twelve sons, one of the patriarchs. Look at verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. 
On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. While God was raising Joseph up to prominence in Egypt, his family, who had rejected him, were starving back up north in Canaan. But due to Joseph's careful planning in Egypt, there was more than enough grain there, despite the famine. And so Joseph became, ultimately, the deliverer of God's people. His own family, who had sold him, came to him for food. And so the Israelites ended up living down in Egypt. God's grace that was first shown to Abraham continued to be shown to Abraham's descendants through the man that they rejected. Well, now God has a people, a people that's growing, but his people still don't have a land of their own. So Stephen goes on in verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Man, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. We're being told that God sent another deliverer, Moses, but his own people rejected him. In verses 30 to 34, Stephen goes on to explain how God appeared to Moses in the desert and sent him back to Egypt. Even though God's people had rejected God's man, God is showing amazing grace. He's sending Moses back. Look down to verse 35. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, 
God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. Even after the Israelites had seen God bringing deliverance through Moses, even after they'd followed him across the bed of the Red Sea with water piled up on either side, even after they'd stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and watched Moses go up to receive God's law, those living words from God, even after all that, they again rejected the deliverer God had sent them. And the reality is, all of this was a rejection of God. Joseph and Moses were God's instruments. We've been told that God was with Joseph and that God sent Moses. So remember for a minute what Stephen has been accused of. Speaking against Moses. And the law given to Moses. Those were the charges against him. But we've heard Stephen saying that God appointed Moses. And he has described the law as living words. Stephen is not against Moses and the law. History shows that it's Israel who has been against Moses and the law. That ultimately means they were against God. And the lesson of history is that God rejects those who reject his grace. Look what Stephen says in verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This isn't the only place where we read about God giving people over to their sin. We find it in the New Testament as well. Most strongly in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. The Bible tells us that there comes a point where God says to people, this is what you want? You want this idol or this sin or this way of life more than you want me? Then have it. Take it. Enter into it. And all the consequences that come with it. I give you over to it. The book of Hebrews says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But here we are seeing the opposite horror. It is an equally dreadful thing to fall out of the hands of the living God. 
to have him reject us and turn away and leave us to the poison of our sin. God's judgment can take the form of abandonment. Ultimately, that's what happens to those who persist in rejecting God's grace. They're left to whatever it is they've chosen instead of his grace. So please, don't let church give you a false sense of security. Sitting here once a week does not protect you from God's judgment. It doesn't keep you safe in God's hands. God wants your heart and your life. If you sit here every week and never give him those things, then you're rejecting him and you will receive his judgment. And in this life, that may mean that he turns away and leaves you sitting here every week, content and at ease in your sin. That's essentially what happened to Israel. In these verses, Stephen is quoting from God's words through the prophet Amos. God asks the people the question, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert? And the people might have been quick to say, yes, yes, we did, every day. But God says, no, you didn't. Sure, you brought lots of sacrifices and offerings. You did lots of religious stuff. You showed up at the meetings. But you weren't worshipping me. Your hearts were devoted to other things. In Israel's case, those other things were false gods. Molech and Rephan. They find the gods of the nations around them much more attractive than the true God. And when the true God turned away from them, they had no deliverer. They were carried away into exile. Remember what the book of Acts is about. It's about God working through human messengers to spread the good news about Jesus. Jesus who came as God's ultimate deliverer. Not just for Israel, but for the whole world. He brought about that deliverance by dying on a cross. He died to release men and women from the debt and the power of their sin. And to wash away the stain of their sin. The city of Jerusalem has been the first to hear the message about Jesus. But Jerusalem is rejecting it. By and large. Stephen stands before these people as Jesus' rejected messenger. And he points these people to their own history. It's a history of rejected grace. And it's a history showing that rejecting God's grace leads ultimately to rejection by God. Stephen isn't the one that's on trial here. The people of Jerusalem are on trial. Are they going to continue rejecting God's grace? Back in chapter 6, one of the accusations against Stephen was this. We have heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. This place means the temple. 
the big and beautiful building where this trial is taking place. And what these uh, accusers are referring to is something said by Jesus himself and then repeated by Stephen. John's Gospel records an incident where Jesus walked into the temple and he kicked half of the people in there out into the street. Actually, he made a whip and whipped them out into the street. And in the aftermath of that, the Jews turned to Jesus and asked him for a sign. They said, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And we're told that Jesus replied, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. John goes on to tell us the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus wasn't just promising to do an amazing stunt for these people. He was explaining that the world as they knew it had changed. The grand and beautiful temple in Jerusalem was not the true temple of God. It never had been. He, God's son, is the temple. He's the place where God dwells. He's the place where men and women meet God. And now that he's come to earth, the big building in Jerusalem has outlived its usefulness. It was only meant to prepare people for his arrival. Now up to this point, Jesus' followers are the only ones who've understood this. And so as Stephen's speech gets towards its climax, he explains that he's not against the temple. He says that the temple in Jerusalem is a good thing. But it's a temporary thing. It's not an ultimate thing. And he starts by mentioning the forerunner to the temple. That's the tent called the tabernacle. When Israel was on the move, they didn't have a building. They had a tent. Look at verse 44. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your father's. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen's point is that the true house of God has come. Jesus is the righteous one sent by God. He is where we meet God. We worship God by worshiping him. Not by coming to a man-made house of God, 
But Israel has rejected and killed him. And even now that he's risen, they're rejecting his messengers. That's why Stephen's on trial. These people want their traditions and their sense of superiority because of their traditions. They want those things more than they want God himself. We noticed earlier that Stephen began his speech by identifying with his accusers. He spoke about our father Abraham. And that continued right through the speech. Stephen has been honest about the sin of his own ancestors. But he is not going to continue their sin. Now in the present, he parts company with their attitude. And so for the first time in verse 51, he changes from speaking about us and our to you and your. You stiff-necked people, he says. In other words, you stubborn lot. Your ancestors were unwilling to bend to God, and you're just the same. Yes, he says, your bodies may bear the physical marks of devotion to God. You're circumcised all right. But you won't give God the devotion he's actually looking for. You have uncircumcised hearts and ears. So never mind the marks on your body. Never mind your religious performances. God wants your affection and your obedience. And you're not giving it to him. Jesus of Nazareth has received God's full, undeniable commendation. God raised him from the dead. But you're still rejecting him. You don't want God, Stephen says. You want your traditions and you want your own way more than you want the God who showers you with grace. Well, Stephen never got to finish his speech. Almost certainly he would have ended it with a call to turn from their sin, to repent. But he's not given that chance. When he calls them stiff-necked and disobedience, they've had enough. Look at verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses, that's his accusers, laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. This passage records the death of the first Christian martyr. It also introduces us to the main character of the second half of the book of Acts, this man called Saul, later to be known as Paul. 
But this passage is first and foremost about the rejection of God's ultimate deliverer. Stephen began his speech by talking about the God of glory who appeared to Abraham. Now at his death, Stephen sees the God of glory for himself. And sharing that glory and sharing all of God's authority, he sees Jesus, risen and exalted to his Father's side. And, verse 55, standing. The Lord of the church does not have his feet up. He's standing. He is keenly interested. And he's ready to receive his faithful servant, Stephen. The risen Lord of the church loves his church. He loves and he pays attention to every member of his church, including those who wait on tables in the church. Commentators have noticed a long list of similarities between Stephen's trial and death and Jesus' trial and death. Jesus was rejected by those he came to save. And now here's a messenger of Jesus rejected as he calls those same people to find salvation in Jesus. The Jews had no legal authority to execute anyone. What happens to Stephen is the equivalent of a lynching. It's an angry mob out of control, bringing their own justice. And maybe we picture this scene in our mind's eye, and we think, animals, they're like animals. Stephen obviously loves these people. Look how he prays for them, even as he's dying. Have they no understanding? Have they no sense of his concern for them? But don't you see, this is about some of us too. Maybe we don't gnash our teeth when we hear the call to repent. Maybe we don't cover our ears and yell and stone the preacher. But we still reject the Savior. Maybe it's because of our own little efforts to make the world a better place. Maybe we just don't want to admit that those don't gain us any points with God. Maybe it's our traditions or our pride. Maybe we say to ourselves, I've been a church person most of my life. I've sat here hundreds of times. Most people would assume that I am a Christian. I'm not going to admit that I still need Jesus just as much as the person who never darkens the door of a church. Maybe it's fear of what people will think of us or what they'll say to us. There can be any number of things that cause us to turn away week after week, time after time. But all of it amounts to just the same thing. Rejection of God's ultimate deliverer. In just a few moments, we're going to meet around this table and remember Jesus' deliverance. We're going to remember that like Joseph, but in a far greater way, Jesus offers us life instead of death. 
We're going to remember that like Moses, but in a far greater way, Jesus offers us freedom from slavery and oppression. And we're going to remember that he paid the bill for our life and freedom by his own death. If you've been rejecting him, then this morning set aside your stubbornness and receive him. Trust him. And if we already know him as our Savior, let's rededicate ourselves to him. Let's give him the worship, not just of our lips, but also of our ears and our hearts. Let's recommit ourselves to listen to him and obey him and to love him above anything else. Let's do that as we sing together, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.